Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how are you, sir? Well, I'm so excited to talk about the New Testament because I have hours and hours and hours of stuff I could say. So we're going to see how this works. How is that different from any other day that we record, Derek? You always got hours and hours to say (sighs) about anything. Like, why do you say that like it's new information to any of us listening? But, well, in, well, I, I think I planned a little bit better this time, and so I know. <laughs> so maybe, hopefully, we can uh, reduce this. So, okay. um, but I mean, that's what the millennium is for. It's because it's going to take me a thousand years to say every well, after Jesus comes back. It's going to take me a thousand years to finish everything I was going to say. <laughs> we might need right? more than before the before Jesus for that, gets my a guy. chance to do. <laughs> what? That got so dark I just want to now. You just reminded me of a story about this. Um, I think it was in the sixth or seventh century. The the king of the Frisians named Radbod. Because I'm studying Old English, which is not the same as Old Frisian, but there's contact between the two. And I and I uh, so Radbod was a. Um, wasn't was not a Christian. He was part of the Germanic uh, polytheistic tradition, uh-huh. and he was evangelized by Christian missionaries, and they were about to baptize him. And the bishop was about to baptize him. And then, as Radbod was stepping into the to the water, he said, "Wait, what? What about my ancestors? Right? Like, mm-hmm. how are they going to be saved?" And the bishop said, "Well, they're in hell right now, and there's nothing we can do." And then Radbod stepped back out and said, well, I'm going to be in hell with them and didn't get baptized. So uh, I like that one of the beauties of the restored gospel is we have a provision for linking all generations together and Mm -hmm. providing access for those who are dead, which is a marginalized category because, like, by definition, the dead can't really... They're they're in a real tight spot, right? So, yeah. uh, in terms of empowerment um, and marginalization, like they don't have any powers here on Earth. So, right. what we can do is, um, yeah. Well, anyway, so that's that's an interesting story. Let's get started on. I want to hear what you have to say about the historical background of John. I don't have all that much to say, but it is the part that hit me the hardest when it came, when it came to uh, my study of John, uh, or at least uh, getting ready to begin uh, the study of John. So why I want to spend any kind of time on the historical context, I mean, we do this, I feel, every week we begin a chapter or begin a new book of uh, scripture. But of all the gospels, John is you know, pretty unique in terms of uh, the characters that appear, uh, the events it covers and doesn't cover as well, um, and also the higher theological than historical focus and content of uh, of the book. John is also unique because the hostility of Jesus's own people, uh, the Jews, toward him is the most is the most prominent in the book of John than it is of any other books, more so than any of the other Gospels, rather. You'll, you'll see Jesus get into it with the Jews for not getting him, for not recognizing him, for not understanding him. We were going to see that discipleship is costly in the book of John to the point where those who follow Christ are marginalized. Um, they're expelled from synagogues, though this didn't really happen until 
the time in which John wrote this gospel, not the time that the gospel covers, to be clear. But at one point in John, we see the phrase that uh, Christ's disciples are, quote, afraid of the Jews, but Jesus and his disciples are Jews. You know, John is writing in a historical context of a of a really troubled and painful rupture in Jewish society between disciples of Christ and uh, the rest of the Jews. In some places, those who confess Christ are straight up kicked out of the synagogues. So John here is writing primarily to encourage people that Jesus is the Christ at a time where, you know, such a belief is pretty costly. He spends a lot more time talking about and stressing the divinity of Jesus than any other gospels. And uh, he, Jesus is even presented, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read this paragraph from the uh, HarperCollins Study Bible, or I guess just a sentence, but it says he's presented as being alien to this world, and that such beliefs like the divinity were the focus of this conflict between the Christian community and the synagogue authorities, which left the community itself feeling alienated from the world, close quote. So I, I wanted to stress that because I feel like there's something very familiar and very similar to our day. Like not to say that I necessarily see a rupture in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I do feel very strongly that ideas about Christ and who Christ was and what Christ taught, I feel like are becoming very divisive within Christ's church. I see people decrying efforts to obtain justice, uh, obtain social justice as things of Satan, even though this was a big part of Christ's ministry, if not the entire part of Christ's ministry. And we see people who have been excommunicated for pursuing those ends, those uh, very Christ-like ends. It feels very familiar and also like a warning a little bit in John that we see this tension, this infighting in the uh, Jewish community. And I'm seeing something very similar in our own community. We see the teachings of Jesus Christ being taught to members of our, of our community and yet not being recognized as such to the point where we see people getting excommunicated, we see a lot of infighting, and we see a lot of uh, division to the point where uh, unity is very difficult and it is very difficult for people who do recognize Christ for who he is and his teachings for what they are, not finding a home or not being able to find a home among the saints anymore. And I think that's very sad. Um, that this is more or less the context that John is writing in. But John is also very successful theologically in persuading people that Jesus is the Christ and very uh, successful in encouraging people to stick with this whole thing, this whole Jesus movement, in spite of this, uh, of this, of this contention, of this uh, rupture, of this community uh, table-breaking, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that's what John is writing this gospel in the context of, and consequently, it's one of the most, one of the more profound, theologically profound uh, books in the entirety of uh, of the New Testament. Uh, so, did you want to comment on that before we moved on? Oh boy, there's so many things I could say. 
but I, I just want to put a, a, a placeholder for a conversation about Jewish-Christian relations and to what extent we can use the Gospels to tell us about Second Temple Judaism. Because part of the challenge is that these Gospel writers were writing with their own agendas and biases, and they when they talk about the Jews, that does not characterize Jews as a whole, even at the time. And unfortunately, there's significant amounts of anti-Jewish material in the New Testament that we need to recognize are there and have caused problems over the past 2,000 years. Uh, but that's a much longer conversation. Other than to say, uh, for now, we just have to be very careful about how we talk about Jews uh, and how we um, and we need to be sensitive about about these things when we engage, engage especially John. But there's anti-Jewish material in all four Gospels, and we and we, we'll have to talk about that later sometime. But I just want to name that right now. Well, I'll just read this short paragraph here that also clarifies what you're saying. It says it's important to remember that when John speaks of the Jews, it does not refer to the Jewish people as a whole. In some passages, the translation Judeans is possible, perhaps reflecting tensions between Galileans and Judeans in the time of Jesus. But generally, the ultimate reference seems to be the synagogue authorities of a particular time and place who are inimical to the Christian movement, although another option might be those Jewish believers whose faith or their courage in expressing it fell short uh, fell short in the writer's view. Most probably, the hostile debates between the Jews and Jesus and John indicate the intensity of the conflict between the synagogue authorities and the Jewish Christian community in which this gospel was written, close quote. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. I want to go ahead and talk about the purpose of the Gospels, um, and I'm going to look at three texts, Luke 1, 1 through 4, John 20, 30 through 31, and John 21, 24 through 25. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of the Luke text. I'm just going to say that the author of Luke is addressing this to Theophilus, and it says, so it seemed good to me because I have followed all things carefully from the beginning to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know for certain the things that you were taught. Uh, well, now I'm actually going to go bring it back and read the first two verses. Now, many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, like the accounts passed on to us by those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word from the beginning. Now, I wanted to say a couple of things about this. So the purpose of this is so that um, believers can know for certain the things that they were taught. But the second thing that we see is that Luke admits in his prologue, although we don't know the, na- the name, I'm just going to call him Luke. Um, Luke admits in, in his prologue that he knew and used sources. There were previous written accounts, and he uses sources. And I remember when I first encountered source criticism being like, oh no, that that somehow uh, puts some skepticism on the fact that it's the word of God or like why, like, oh no, if it's humans put it together, then through a natural process, then it somehow discounts the inspiration or the authority in some way. But I want to remind everyone what Alma 37 verses six through seven says about 
uh, our Latter-day Saint principle that God uses means, and these means are often meager or are humble or embarrassing or plain, something the last thing you would suspect. And so let's lean into that Latter-day Saint principle. Here's what, um, here's what Alma 37 says. Behold, I say unto you that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass, and small means in many instances doth confound the wise. And the Lord God doth work by means to bring about his great and eternal purposes, and by very small means the Lord doth confound the wise and bringeth about the salvation of many souls. So we see here that God uses means, and that is a very incarnational rhythm to begin with, and we're going to talk about the incarnation more. But we see that God doesn't work directly, but God uses instruments, God uses tools, God uses means, and accommodates to the limitations of those means. So we'll see human fingerprints all over the Gospels, including mm. uh, you know, some of the things about, uh, about Jews, which we may, we may write differently today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me go on to John, the two texts, both closing, these are closing the final two chapters of John. The one at the end of John 20 says this, now Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose, according to John here, is these are written so that we might believe and might, and because of that belief might have life. Mm. And then the final verses of John uh, this is what it says. This is the disciple who testifies about these things and has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. There are many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Sounds like John had the same problem that I did. <laughs> like, there's not enough room to <laughs> say everything I want to say. I was like, John is you. You are John. Yeah. So, <laughs> whoops. But I think I just love that the, that these were written not to be um, objective, factual, uh, journalistic reporter style things. Right. This is right? not these as are much designed a to be document. faith documents that are designed. And Luke and John are both. Luke and John are the only one that really explicitly tell you their purpose. And both of them, it is to build faith. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not to answer every question that we would have. Like, I have so many questions about what Jesus did here and there. Like, you could yeah. read all of the Gospels in an afternoon, literally. Each one would take a, take about two hours. You could read them all uh, in an afternoon, and then you have all that we know about Christ's three-year ministry, right? So, yeah. there's not, like, it's not designed to satisfy our our curiosity, but we here go back to these small and simple means that that Luke and John, with their human fingerprints all over the scriptures, end up being small and simple thing, uh, things, means by which God does great things. And I'm not going to quote this because I don't have it in front of me, but Martin Luther, in his preface to the Old Testament, was writing. So he translated the uh, the Bible into German and wanted to help people understand. And he's like, oh, well, if now that people are actually able to read the Bible in German, they're going to notice all these human fingerprints. They're going to notice all these rough edges. They're going to notice this isn't, this isn't pretty all the time. Mm-hmm. And so Luther said that 
the scriptures are the manger in which the word of God is laid. In the sense that it doesn't look shining and dazzling. It's it's a manger. It's kind of embarrassing. But this is where we encounter uh, the word of God, Christ. Mm. So that's that's kind of another way of taking it. And here's here's my problem. And I, I, get, I, I bet I could get 100 people telling me I'm a hypocrite. Because people are going to tell me, Derek, you have such a a healthy and responsible and nuanced way of approaching the human fingerprints that are all over the scriptures. You love the scriptures. You dedicate your life to the scriptures in the Bible. Uh, and you're able to handle those human fingerprints. So, Derek, why aren't you able to handle the human fingerprints of the living apostles and prophets? And that's a fair question, right? Is it, though? I well I may I I don't maybe I haven't done the work to I mean figure. go ahead and talk about it like I want to talk through this with you but I I want to see where you're going with it I think part of part of the challenge is um I don't know I don't know but I mean I think with with the living prophets and apostles were tempted by our culture to have an all or nothing approach like oh you got to mm-hmm. sustain them completely or else you got to not be here yeah right or you're not faithful and i think it's that culture that i'm up against and there's not room to be nuanced it seems like if i if i get up there and i say um from the pulpit that elder oaks or president oaks is wrong about this that's just something that we don't say and we don't hear no it's not so i think that's kind of what i'm up and maybe it's so i i also i don't know maybe i have more patience for uh, the biblical text because it has proven to have such enduring value and there have been centuries and generations of people wrestling with it and able to uh, to work on it and say well this is a problem but we're going to do it this way and we're going to we're going to fix it this way or this is this is what we're not going to take literally or mm-hmm. i think there's the time and distance gives us a better perspective and it sifts through like oh now we know better and uh that's not quite the same with uh well it will be like i guarantee you we look at brigham oh boy do we yeah. have some sifting right yeah, yeah. uh okay not- i i think i understand so yes and the reason i'm not inclined to believe that that is not a fair question right um that i'm not inclined to believe that's a fair question is because in a way you already do accept the human fingerprints by virtue of, you know, your membership in this church, your willingness to work within the institution, doing this podcast, which has bestowed mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of charity to the brethren, bringing them down from their unnecessary pedestals to a more human relatable level, thereby taking away the unnecessary pressure that was also on them to put people in a better position to uh, exercise their agency, which is necessary for spiritual growth as opposed to letting them defer to brethren for everything and complete very little growth, if any growth. I, I, I already feel like you've accepted the human fingerprints or that you operate within an imperfect institution, but that doesn't give us license, particularly in our own context, to just allow injustice. I, I think you do accept the human fingerprints of our present context. And I believe if you recognize injustices, you know, back then when the Bible was written, um, you would have addressed them too as best you could. So I, I don't think it's a fair question 
to ask of you considering the presumption that you haven't already given the brethren or any of our leaders the necessary leeway to be human. You got baptized in spite of homophobic policy, and you, you're still here in spite of homophobic policy. You're doing this podcast again, despite, you know, whatever exhaustion you might be feeling. If you expected perfection, if you couldn't see or appreciate the human fingerprints that exist in the present day, I don't right. think you would be right. here. And I think part of the, the hypocrisy may come in. Yeah, why do where, you feel like a hypocrite? Or, <laughs> well, let me just explain. So, okay, my bad, my bad. Go ahead. Paul, there, there's stuff that, that what he wrote about women, what he wrote about enslaved folks, yep. um, what he wrote about um, uh, the stuff that can be used, that gets used against the LGBTQ community. Like, I know all that stuff very well, but mm-hmm. still, Paul, I I use the rest of what he did very well. I mean, like, I draw upon Paul. I think like Paul. I, like, he's one of the, I think he's a very queer thinker. He's like a very option three thinker. He's, he throws a wrench into the whole thing. And Most I think definitely. I'm still, I'm still able to use a lot of Paul and depend on Paul. Yep. Unfortunately, I think President Oaks, like, I really can't use any of his stuff. Hmm. Right? I really can't learn from any of his stuff. And the the, the ca- cases where I agree with him, it's like, oh, I'm only quoting him as evidence of something I already knew, right? I, uh-huh. it's, it's very rare that I'm, like, sitting at his feet and learning. But what is the difference between that? Oaks and Paul? Well, not Oaks and Paul. Oh, oh gosh, that, <laughs> that that's a conversation. But like, oh, I should start a band called Paul and Oaks. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, yay, Paul and Oaks. <laughs> Paul and Oaks. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I, I forgot what I was going to say. Now, um, probably wasn't that important. So uh, just go ahead and continue. No, but you were going to tell me the difference between paul and oaks dude i i think all of us do more or less the same thing my guy like i i know there's times where we've been critical of the apostles or critical of other you know brethren but we've also quoted those same guys we've we've sat on this show and we've quoted brigham young in the same episode that we criticized him for something else i know that i've been very critical of elder holland in the past but he's definitely somebody that i've quoted a lot i've quoted in my course i've quoted oaks in my course i've also been critical of oaks i think there's room for both and like and i also think there is but maybe maybe at the moment where i am i'm not doing a good balance i don't know what that would look like exactly but um it's here's the other thing is uh well no that i'm i'm just Let's just pause this for right now and come back to it another week because this is getting way off the stuff that I actually had planned. Very I well. Had Very planned well. Planned out this this other thing. So, and that means uh, I just want to name the the beautiful, lovely poetry that we have. It, although it's not technically poetry, but it is very poetic. The first um, eighteen verses of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. This is the translation, the, the Net Bible. The Word was with God in the beginning. I just love how we open it up with this echo of Genesis. We get the coexistence of the Word. I, ju- I could probably talk on and on about that. So I'm going to skip to John 1.3. Okay. Here's what John 1.3 says. All things were created by him, and apart from him... 
Not one thing was created that has been created. And I just want to pause here and to say that we start with creation. And we look at creation literally uh, as out in the field or in the temple or in the scriptures. We see that God loves diversity. God loves the division of labor. Not everything does everything. Not everything is the same. Like, uh, I don't know why everyone thinks that the that there's only one LDS lifestyle, that you all have to be married with kids in a heterosexual marriage and have a stay-at-home mom and, and uh, like, all this stuff. Like, is that really what – that's not – like this, 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 the, there's a whole bunch of cultural mess that goes on to, to our views of family and, and community. Yeah. But my point is that God loves diversity. In the temple, we learn that all of these things were created to beautify and give variety to the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Like people are out here in the church telling me that we shouldn't have variety, mm-hmm. or at least we should have variety as long as you're straight. I'm like, that is gross. Variety within these the other specific thing, parameters. Yes. The other thing we learn in the temple is that everything is created that every form of life may fill the measure of its creation and have joy therein, right? LGBTQ folks are not permitted to fill the measure of our creation. We are not permitted to have joy therein, or at least that's the attempt Mm -hmm. by the structures and leaders of the church. And then there's this line that people have said— well, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. <laughs> now, there's two major flaws with that. Number one is Adam and Eve didn't even literally exist. They're not historical, right? right? So God didn't even literally create Adam and Eve. But God created Adam and Steve, that gay couple down the street. They actually exist. Mm-hmm. So ironically, God did create Adam and Steve. Well, because if God didn't, who did? John 1, 3 says all things were created by him. It's not like the devil created Adam and Steve down the street. Yeah. God did. God created me as well. Like, or who did? Right? So we exist. We're here. Like, I think once we insist on our own existence, we've won 90% of the, mm-hmm. of the, of the, the argument. I just want to put a pause and I, I want to plug for, plug for Beowulf here real quick is that Grendel the monster in the in the first part of Beowulf attacks uh the Danes so the Danes built Hrothgar the king built this uh the Amid hall and they were partying and what made Grendel so mad that he wanted to go kill the people in there what they were what made Grendel mad is that he heard them singing about our first creation, about the creation of diversity and the creation of man. And somehow that annoyed Grendel so much that he wanted to go kill them. Now, that's what homophobes do. Like they hear us, queer people, singing about our creation mm-hmm. and they want to kill us. Literally and figuratively. So I just wanna wanna put that there. Mm. I wanna say something about John one, four and five. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. I want to name, so so tastes and styles have changed. I remember Dr. King, well, I don't remember him literally, but I've heard him talk about darkness. You know, he talks about darkness as this evil thing, and, and now people are saying, well, given our racialized understanding of 
quote, dark people, uh, we, we have to be sensitive about using the word darkness. And if we only use it as a symbol of evil, that can be very easily scooched into thinking that darker people are evil. Now, there's a problem because we've conflated the darkness meaning the absence of light versus darkness meaning the presence of pigment. Those are different words in, in Greek. Mm-hmm. So um, we've somehow made and, – and I agree. Darkness that's the absence of light really is bad because you, you stub your toe. You can't see where you're going. You'll, you can't find stuff. You can't read. Oh, I love reading, right? So darkness meaning the absence of light really is a challenge. Mm-hmm. But I also want to point out that so many of the salvation historical events of God's people happened in the darkness. Like creation happened in darkness. Birth the um, Exodus. What? Birth of Christ. Yes, the birth of Christ at night. The um, resurrection happened at night, right? The the crossing of the Red Sea happened at night. There's just so many things that that darkness is this uterus of of uh, of com- a, a crucible of combustion where something beautiful can happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, inside the womb is is darkness, and that is a creative darkness and a productive darkness, and darkness is good. Uh, when you look at our, I want to say, how does Gaffney translate it? Here's what Gaffney says. Um, and what are you reading from, by the way? Oh, I'm reading from a women's lectionary for the whole church. By the way, Will Gaffney is a womanist Hebrew Bible scholar, just in case people don't know the context. Not a lot of those, by the way. Very few womanist Hebrew Bible scholars. Right. There needs to be more, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, here's what Gaffney says. The light, let me back up and do verse 4 and 5. In the word was life, and that life was the light of all people. Gaffney makes this gender neutral, uh, which in the Greek, it's it's gender neutral to begin with. So uh, she brings that back. So in verse 5, the light shines in the bleakness, and the bleakness did not overtake it. And so she does this elsewhere. She'll sometimes use shadow or bleakness or shade or something like that to really symbolize, to really bring out the fact that she's not, she doesn't want anything to be used uh, to conflate darkness and evil in a way that that resonates or rhymes with the racism that saturates our environment. So let's talk about what I have next. I got to get back to my notes. Okay. Um, oh, also, the war scroll of of the Qumran community, this is the Dead Sea Scrolls 1QM, starts out by talking about a battle between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. So this is uh, this this uh, dualism, this binary structure is uh, is present elsewhere. And I just want to say that in reality, when God separated the light from the darkness in in Genesis 1, it wasn't a perfect binary. There's twilight, there's sunset, there's sunrise, there's gradation, there's a spectrum. It's it's beautiful. In fact, those non-binary places are the most beautiful places, I think. Anyway, I want to put that there too. Let's go to John 1, 10 and 11. He was in the world and the world was created by him, but the world did not recognize him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not receive him. 
And I feel that so strongly as a queer person in the church. Like I came to this church, I should be welcome. Mm-hmm. Our church should be the most pro LGBT church of any of them, mm-hmm. but it's not. Mm-hmm. And when it says he came to his own, it's not clear whether he means uh, his own Jewish people or his own creation. I th- I think it almost could go in context. It could go a little of both, both and. But our context here is definitely about the creation of all things were created by him. And he came to this world, his creation, and he was not recognized. Mm. But yeah, I, I hate that I have to say the same thing about myself that is said here about Jesus. He came to what well, he came to his own, but his own received him not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about all the LGBTQ families or all, all the LGBTQ people who are born into rejecting families. God sent them a beloved, beautiful LGBTQ child, and they reject that child. That's not okay. And people right. then use the church leaders and the church doctrine and the church policy as an excuse to do that rejecting. Whereas we see the rhythm should be the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about the reconstruction of family because I said one of my themes this year was going to be talking about, well, how does the New Testament deconstruct and then reconstruct family? Right. Here's what it says in 12 and 13. But to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. Children not born by human parents or by human desire or a husband's decision, but by God. And that first prepositional phrase is ex haimaton, which means literally of blood uh, or of bloods. And uh, that's probably, that's how it is in the King James, those children born not by blood. And so here's the thing. This text completely decenters blood relationships. I'm going to say it again. We need to stop idolizing blood relationships. What really matters is faith. Being adopted into God's family doesn't matter. And also, this business about blood can be, can be applied to racism. We should not be boasting in our lineage and what bloodline we're from. That is excluded by the prologue to John here. Mm-hmm. It's about those who are children of God by faith. So here we see the deconstruction and reconstruction of family. But here's one thing I want to do. I want to ask the question of how does being a child of God change your prayer life? And I, I, I think this would is something, maybe I should have a little uh, su- surprise task for people every week, like something that they practically can do different. And here's what I would invite people to do is, Pray differently this week because of something you learned on this podcast. And let's talk about um, uh, this Abba. I love this idea. This is the Aramaic word for uh, for father. And I just want to turn to Romans chapter 8 because Paul says it so beautifully. And this is another example of like how I can be fed by Paul and how I can be called to repentance by Paul and how I can be inspired by Paul in a way that for some reason Oaks has um, has lost a lot of legitimacy for me. Anyway, so let's go to Romans chapter 8. And here's what it says. This is verses 14 through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. Two things to name is, one, the biblical model of family is adoption. Hello, chosen family, right? Mm -hmm. Chosen family. It's a very active thing as opposed to a a passive thing, family and Right. Like, I don't know why these straight people are all bragging about how straight they are. Like, Like y'all didn't do nothing to earn that. Like, (laughs) right? That's not choice. Like, yeah, my bad. Go ahead. And then this other thing, Abba, Father. So Paul actually has the Aramaic word there, Abba, and then the Greek word, Father. Um, he has the Aramaic word in Greek letters, and then the Greek word for Father. So you get both, Abba, Father. That is how we pray, and that's how um, Jesus prayed, and that's how the beginning of the Lord's Prayer begins. I want to pause and quickly talk about this um this text in Ta'anit 23b from the Babylonian Talmud. And so here, we once talked about Honey the circle drawer and yeah. his prayers for rain. Yeah. Okay, and how, how, this, how he uh, held God accountable. This is about his grandson. So let me read here from a translation of the, the Talmud. Hanan HaNechba was the son of Honey HaMagel's daughter. When the world was in need of rain, and the sages would send school children to him, and they would grab him by the hem of his cloak and say to him, Abba, Abba, Havlan Mitra, which means, Father, Father, give us rain. And he said before the Holy One, Blessed be he, Master of the universe, act on behalf of these, these children who cannot distinguish between the Abba who can provide rain and the Abba who cannot provide rain. And the Abba who can provide rain is is, uh, the Father in heaven, and the Abba who cannot provide rain is Hanan himself that they're they're grabbing the, the, the hem of, okay? And I find that so beautiful that that is how we uh, how we end up crying out to God and holding God accountable and, and having this relationship as the key to to our prayer. So so uh, maybe that will change our prayer life at some point. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about John 1.14. Oh, I could talk on and on about this, but now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth who came from the Father. Now, I love this idea of the word becoming flesh, the incarnation, the divestment of privilege. And we will see John the Baptist will embody this in just a moment when he points to Christ so beautifully mm-hmm. and takes all of his microphone and hands it over to Christ. But I also want to say that incarnation is about accessibility. And we can see this with the temple. We've got temple theology here because uh, when the King James says, and dwelt among us, um, the word is eskenosin in hemin. He tabernacled or or uh, or lived dwelt in a tent, right? It comes from the word for tent or tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Tabernacle. Uh, tabernacled among us. And that's about accessibility. I think the tabernacle in the temple 
in the Hebrew Bible were about God's presence among us and being able to have a focal point where we can go to see God and to interact with God and have this access. But for a moment, many people today, the temple is about lack of access. It's Mm -hmm. about exclusion. It's about Mm -hmm. keeping people away from God. And I think we've got a big problem with that. And I'm going to talk about the temple more. I don't have time this time, but I'll talk about the theology of the temple next time when we talk about John 2 and the cleansing of the temple because the temple can function as one of the most manipulative features of our faith. Most definitely. Speaking of access, I wish we had more access to church leaders. And this isn't something that came down from Sinai, and this isn't something that came from down from, from Brigham or Joseph. This is something modern within the past couple of generations. Like, you could go to Joseph and ask him questions. You could go to Brigham. Like, even up until... The 60s, people could make appointments and go in. I remember hearing Jody England Hansen tell me about how her father, uh, Eugene England, went in to see Joseph Fielding Smith and said, hey, tell me about this and the priesthood ban and tell me like where this is in the scriptures and where is it justified and, and actually tr- tried to hold our leaders accountable to that. Um, and England's question was, well, do I have to actually teach this if it's not a, not in the scriptures? But my point is, there was a time where you could go walk in. Now we've got this reverse. We've got this this celebrity, this royalty, this paparazzi, this yeah. whatever thingy that keeps people from the one people, from the one group of people that, that claim to have the bat phone to heaven, right? Like mm-hmm. that is the opposite of what, an incarnational church should be. It should be accessible. Like, Jesus let people touch him. Like, when people tried to keep people away from him, he said, no, let the children come to me. Right? Like, this is backwards. Like, this church does not testify of Christ when it doesn't act like Christ. Let me say it again. I like that. I just made that up. This church does not testify of Christ when it does not act like Christ. Christ That's came to be accessible. He let the people in the new world touch him one by one. No matter how many thousands there were, they all got a chance to touch him. Mm-hmm. Like, why don't we get a chance to touch the apostles and the prophet? They ha- put layers and layers of bureaucracy between us. Like when they come to visit, they have handlers making sure that people can't go up to them and talk because they don't want to be accountable. They don't want questions they don't ha- they don't have the answer to. They don't want anything that isn't a perfect, like a perfectly telepromptered media presence. They mm-hmm. focus more on image. Like if I were the prophet or the apostles or or anyone, I would be accessible. I, of course, I'm not going to have everything prepared. I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to make mistakes, and I'm going to speak off the cuff. And we're just going to have to deal with that, right? But I'd rather have that, and people will just know, well, okay, well, Derek didn't just didn't use the right word this time, right? So I'd rather have that than have them locked away where there's no accountability, no access, Anyway, my point is this is this is a big mess, and I could talk about that for hours. <laughs> yeah. Did you have anything to say about the uh, word becoming flesh and dwelling among us? The word becoming flesh? No, not really. Um, okay. Like I was probably going to say something about grace un- and truth. Nah, not really. No, just I'm thinking about 
all the mess I learned about hypostatic unions in my Christian history class. And I was like, don't nobody want to hear that, that nonsense. I, I barely right. wanted to hear it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I did. I want to talk about that nah, stuff. This but, was the hardest. But, I took systematic theology my first semester here, and that was oops. still easier than Christian history. That was by far the hardest class I've ever had here since I've been here. Not because you know, history is necessarily difficult. I mean, it is very boring and it was definitely a slog, but like having to like learn and read from original sources and then like not have context for them and then having to like look up three supplementary sources just so I could understand the original source, not to mention just the heresies and the controversies of the early Christianity. Oh, this sounds like a good time to me. Like, Dude. I'd love to, to get a group of friends in a library and we have a, a whole a whole evening of doing this. It was frustrating, man. Like, I can't, like, I mean, I'm glad I took it because, like, it really puts into perspective how exactly, well, like, one of my favorite uh, conversations was how Jesus became God, as it were. But, you know, also just mm -hmm. how Christianity and why it looks the way that it does now, like things from the divinity of Christ to why we have, to why sex is such a big cultural identifier among Christian communities, um, why just a lot of why women had the roles that they did and suddenly didn't, what happened to Christian monasticism, just, it's a whole mess, my guy, but, and, you know, this whole thing with the Trinity, too, which is why I, you know, brought that up in the context of 1 John 1, verse 1 through 3 and one fourteen. but, like, I'm getting a headache just thinking about it and just talking about it, so we don't gotta talk about this no more. Okay. Yeah. Well, I wanna say something about grace and truth, and I there's a lot that I could say about grace, especially because this is an important word for Paul as well. And this is something that Latter-day Saints have not understood very well. And our Protestant friends have, have done a lot of the legwork, um, and we haven't respected that as much. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about grace uh, another time. Um, but I, what I wanted to say is where John has... Uh, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came about through Jesus Christ. That's in one seventeen, And then we have full of grace and truth in John one fourteen. So let's talk about this. I love the fact that Alma 9 verse 26 has, And not many days hence the Son of God shall come in his glory, and his glory shall be the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, equity, and truth, Ooh. full of patience, mercy, and long-suffering, quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. Now, my position is that the English Book of Mormon is in part uh, literarily dependent on the King James Version text. That may be controversial for some people who listen. That may be fine for other people, but that's, the, that's how I see the evidence that we're looking at. So we, here we have this to me, a clear dependence of the text of Alma on the text of John. But we get some redaction criticism because once we know that, we realize, oh, any different from John is an intentional difference. So when the Spirit adds equity to John's grace and truth, so now we have 
in Alma, the full of grace, equity, and truth. We realize that that's intentional, that is a priority, and that is an emphasis. All are like unto God, the Spirit testifies to us in the Book of Mormon. I don't know why people think I'm unfaithful for being faithful to what the Book of Mormon teaches, that all are like unto God, including male and female, black and white. Like, I don't know how this can be more, like, clear, but um, I'm absolutely on board with the equality of all genders in the church. We talked about this a little bit last time, but there's more work that we need to do Mm -hmm. to ensure the end of discrimination for women and trans folks in the church. Yeah. But I want to name something about this. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came about through Christ Jesus. Now, I don't want to set up this this binary that the Old Testament God is bad and the New Testament God is good and that Judaism is bad and Christianity is good or Moses bad, Jesus good. That is way too simplistic, and this is not how this is really should be functioning either in the first century or today. But I do want to point out that Jeremiah 31 gives us a hint of this. Um, Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34 about the new covenant. But I will make a new covenant with the whole nation of Israel after I plant them back in the land, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God and they will be my people. People will no longer need to teach their neighbors and relatives to know me. For all of them, from the least important to the most important, will know me, says the Lord. And what I want to do is put this side by side with something that President Oaks has taught uh, in numerous places that, oh, sometimes we don't know the reasons for God's commandments. And on one level, that's true, right? But that can be used to escape and avoid responsibility for interpreting the commandments correctly asking the question, is this really even a commandment? Because we have so many fake commandments that have that have popped up in our culture like mushrooms mm-hmm. and weeds, right? Like, oh, you can't have caffeine, or mm-hmm. oh, you can't X, Y, Z, or oh, you can't be gay, right? Mm-hmm. Those are fake commandments that, have, that are not in our, in our canonized text. They're not the word of God. Mm-hmm. There nowhere is a commandment that says no gay marriage, right? So so these commandments have popped up, and the excuse to not do the work, even though, DN, uh, what is it, DNC 9 says study it out in your mind, mm-hmm. like, oh, you don't have to study it out in your mind because you just obey Outsource your thinking to the, right. to, yeah, to the leaders. Right, or you just, like, don't even ask if it's a commandment or not. Like, don't even, like, don't even think about it. Don't even, but, but I, my view is... That according to what Jeremiah 31 is promising and according to what uh, John 1.17 is promising, grace and truth coming about through Jesus Christ. And we're not limited to the law. And we're not limited to a superficial knowledge of the law where we just obey the law without understanding it. Because mm-hmm. that's the whole point of Jeremiah 31 is that it's going to be in our hearts. We're going to have transformed hearts and transformed desires and transformed characters. The externality of the law, if you just do it because it's a commandment, you don't know why, you're not changed. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand. See, I think part of Oaks's problem is... It's the mixed blessing that he has a background as a lawyer and a judge. And I respect pieces of that. Yeah. But when he now takes that background and uses it to uh, 
to not say, oh, we should be transformed and oh, mm-hmm. we should have a thorough understanding of why that is there. Because part of repentance is knowing the why. Yeah. And I've taught this before with my library analogy, and I, I'm just going to say it real quick because it's important. When I was an undergrad, I used to reshelve the books in the library after I used them. I didn't check them out. I would read them and I would put them back on the shelf. And someone caught me one day. And I knew it was wrong. But I knew that, that there were things posted that said, do not reshelve the books. And I'm like, oh, that doesn't apply to me because I know how to reshelve the books. I will not put it in the wrong place. It will be exactly where it is. I know the Library of Congress cataloging system so well, I will not make a mistake. And there's cases where the book was in the wrong place. I took it and then I put it in the right place. So I thought, yeah, I'm doing good. But then I then they said, no, that's not the reason why. The reason why we have you do this is because we want a record of all the books that are checked out. And we also want a record of all the books that are used in the library and not checked out. And we want to have statistics on both because when it comes time for acquisitions, we know where to appropriate the money. And when they said that, it changed my world because what they were saying is we want to buy more books that are like the books that are people are using. And if we know you're using these books, we'll buy more like them. I'm like, you just got me. Like, whatever multi-level marketing <laughs> scheme there is, you should learn from what they did to me. Because mm. in one second, by explaining to me why the rule was there, it erased every desire to break it. Mm. Like, what we do, and I think that is what Oaks is missing. Mm. Oh, it's okay. I don't know why there's commandments sometimes. We just got to do it. Most of the time we have commandments. We don't know the reason why. I'm like, that may be a part of the journey, Mm -hmm. but part of progressing, part of developing, part of becoming a celestial adult with responsibility and character and and a changed heart is you learn to understand the why. Mm. And it's no longer your parent saying oh do it because i say so right it's you do it because it's right and you know why yeah anyway so i could ramble on about that for a long time let me just say two more things one is about um the role of prophets we have john 1 verses 22 and 23 Uh, the people come up and ask john who he says he is and john says i'm the voice of one shouting in the wilderness make straight the way for the lord as the prophet Isaiah said, mm-hmm. right? He names his identity as one pointing towards the coming Messiah, pointing one pointing and Messiah. preparing the way for the Lord. The role of prophets is to point, point at Christ and get out of the way. Yes, sir. Our culture has created prophets that t- that flip that around and use Christ to point at them. They invoke the name of Christ to talk about the authority that they have. Mm. And they stand in the way of Christ. Whereas what John did was, one, he pointed at Christ, and two, he got out of the way. Mm -hmm. I would love to do that as much as I can, point at Christ, and then I get out of the way. I'm not that important. I love what John the Baptist says later in John 3, verse 30. He must become important. He must become more important while I become less important. I think that King James has something like, he he must increase and I must decrease. Yeah. But if you look at what John 1, 26 and 27 says a few verses later, I baptize with water, John says, among you stands one whom you do not recognize who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. Like, this the is a prophet. The most menial role of a slave, by the way. That's the significance yes. of that statement. Yes. Like, this is what a prof- prophet is doing, is, is, is completely denying 
himself or herself or themself and 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 putting emphasis on Christ. I would love to hear President Nelson say, I'm not worthy to untie the strap of Jesus's sandal. We don't hear that. We hear, oh, I'm I'm the prophet, right? I'm the whatever, right? We need more prophetic humility. We need more apostolic humility. Mm. So um, without that, and here's the other thing. It's not like, oh, I hate them. I'm actually on their side in the sense of I want them to have a good life. I want them to have a good functioning office in the church. But they're making more work for themselves. Mm. They are they're messing it up themselves because they create faulty expectations, because they create a demand for royalty, because they do all this, they end up just shooting themselves in the foot. Mm-hmm. Like it's like the um, in the cartoons where you're sawing off the log you're standing on, the branch you're standing on. Like I feel sorry for these leaders that they don't know any better, right? Everything they do creates a culture of worship around them which makes their job harder, right? Yeah. I'm not against them. I'm for them. I support them better than they support themselves. I sustain them better than they sustain themselves. They are called of God, but are, but for some reason, they're, they're, they're setting themselves up for failure so many times. Every time they come out with something that's wrong, they're actually setting themselves up for failure. Yeah. So... Yeah, we we need to do this better. Now, I've talked way too long. Let me look at this time because I just <laughs> ate up all the time. Oh, well, I'm done. Oh, well. <laughs> That's all fine and good, my guy. Yeah, so tell me more about what you wanted to talk about. Oh, my. Dude, we're at an hour. I'm I'm done talking as well. Oh. <laughs> That's all good, look, my guy. This is how this is how how urgent this is is i didn't even have time for jokes today there's so much to cover right there's a lot to cover the only joke i think i had was uh paul and oaks <laughs> paul and oaks and it was a good joke it was a solid joke and you had some bars in there too you got to write down that thing that. we don't test what'd you say we don't testify of christ when we don't act like christ when we what? don't act like christ yeah that's a whole bar i got to write that down somewhere like i got i got to put that on our social media that, that that that's some that's some brilliant. Tr- you you always be dropping gems, Derek, and I used to be a lot better at writing them. You down do in, too in real time. Like you're the best. Whatever, my guy. Whatever, my guy. You are the best. You're the you, best. People come people come to hear you, my guy, and I I'm totally here for. I come to hear you. You know what I'm saying? So. <laughs> well, I come to hear you. Yeah. Okay. Actually, well, like. But um, yeah, like this is how it goes, and I'm totally fine with that. So, on that note, um, yeah, um. I'm trying to think. I feel like there's some things in Mormon pop culture that are going on that are worth mentioning, but they are evidently not that important because I don't remember them. So I'm going to go ahead and forget that and just begin wrapping things up. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're listening, make sure you tell your family and friends about us because many of them may not know that we're back. Uh, so we're back. Uh, I would love, to, I would love to say we're back and better than ever, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean we're back and uh, certainly better than we were four years ago. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, my guy. When it when like April or May comes around, it'll be 
it It'll will be, four be years. and we will have covered all the come follow me material you know minus the six months we were off but yeah at that point shoot i almost want to like do the episodes anyway simply because they're going to be so much better than they were last year or four years ago yeah let's see that how that goes like and the other thing is we might be able to cover stuff we didn't cover. Like I remember cases where we had to focus on one thing and didn't have time for the others. Now we can do the others and yeah. then people can just listen to both episodes. Yeah. Four years apart. Definitely worth consideration. Like it'll be interesting to see both our growth as a podcast and our growth as people when it comes to uh, the new Testament material that we get to go over again. It'll be, it'll be an interesting yeah. time. I can't believe and the it's best been four part, years. And the best part of going over those same episodes is that I get to make all the same jokes again. <laughs> you will not do the, I don't think you're going to do the same jokes, but uh, you know, we'll see what happens when, once we get there. I'll I'm, have to listen to the I'll have to listen and afflict you with with jokes again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it'll be it'll be a fun time. But anyway, if there is nothing else by way of housekeeping items that we got to remember, thank you all for joining us till we meet again next week. Thank you. Till we meet again next week. Bye-bye.